0: to be brought to you in part by starcitygames.com not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web they're also the world's largest independent retailer for magic the gathering singles and supplies for more information visit starcitygames.com hello everyone and welcome to another episode of lords of limited my name is ben warney and joining me on the line is ethan sachs ethan i am officially on thanksgiving break and i am ready to play magic for an entire week straight what's up with you I mean, I I can't beat that.
1: That sounds very, very exciting. I am preparing for hosting Thanksgiving at our new house. That sounds awful. That involves a lot of cooking, right? That does involve a lot of cooking, which is not awful for me, but I understand how uh, how that would make you feel. Yeah. We also
0: need to check in on the Trophy Leaderboard because I have some exciting news. (laughs) What's your exciting news, Ben? I have finally done more drafts than you have trophies, which is an (laughs) impressive accomplishment for me. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I drafted up a storm this week. I now have 53 drafts under my belt at 109 and 48 overall record, 13 trophies and a 69% win rate. And I know you love this stat. I have been on a trophy drought during the drafts I've done. I've done probably close to 20 drafts, maybe more this week. And I lost in the finals like eight, nine times and only trophy twice. It has been some rough going out there. So why are you so bad under pressure? I know, right? Yeah. Got to get my got to get my stuff together. All right. So I've got
1: 165 drafts, 328 to 155 win loss, a measly 50 trophies in comparison to your 53 drafts and uh, 68% win rates.
0: Yeah. Rock solid. You're crushing it on the trophy front.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, you know, sort of slow and steady. I hit some hit some rough patches though. I've got a more more O2s than I'd like to admit in the
0: in the past week, but I'm still loving the format, still cruising towards 200 drafts. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was hitting this rough patch. Like, you know, you and I both have the luxury of drafting a boatload. And if if you were hitting a rough patch like this spread out over the course of like a month or two months, it would just feel miserable, right? Like, so just everybody out there that plays Magic, just know that this happens to us, too. And it happens to everybody. Just keep plugging away and make sure you're analyzing, you know, that you're doing the right things, that you have the right card evaluations, and that you're controlling what you can control.
1: Yeah, I mean, even with the amount of drafts that I do, I still feel like it's kind of still kind of a smallish sample size, you know, things like even out or whatever. But there are like large chunks of like 20 or 30 drafts. And that's like the amount of drafts that some people just do over a format's lifetime. So yeah, do not let variants get you down. All right, Ben, with Thanksgiving on the horizon, I thought it would be appropriate for us to each have a nice big slice of humble pie served to us on this episode as we're going to go back and re-review some of the like build around rares and uncommons and sort of general synergy things that maybe we missed on. Maybe one of us hit on the other one missed on. Uh, And now that we've got A number of drafts under our belt and a number of opportunities to play with these cards or play against these cards. We're going to sort of look at what we missed, why we missed, and maybe what sort of takeaways we can have for the future. But before we get into any of that today, we got to take care of some housekeeping. First things first, talk about the Lords of Limited Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. We're getting to Thanksgiving, we're getting to Christmas, to the holidays. It's the season of giving. If you want to give back to the show, we certainly appreciate your support. And for everyone who gives back, we want to give you access to a number of things. Base level is access to the Lords of Limited Discord. Talk about it each and every week. Just a fantastic limited community to grow. People of all different skill levels helping each other out in a variety of ways. I'm very excited to use. That uh, upcoming in January, I'm going to be attending GP New Jersey, which is going to be a release week of the Theros format, the new Theros that comes out in January. So I'm going to be really trying to mine the Discord for all it's worth during preparation for that. There's a lot of other good stuff you can get from the Patreon, access to our show notes, to some spreadsheets, access to like a private Discord channel. All these goodies are available at patreon.com slash lords of limited. And each and every week, we want to make sure we welcome our new patrons to the fold. So this week, we want to give a warm welcome to Thomas. Florian, Will, Brett, Alexander, Chris, Zach, Lucas... Powell and
0: Anthony. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah. Speaking of Thanksgiving, cannot say thank you enough. Feel very fortunate and very blessed to be doing this podcast with you and to have, you know, content that people think is worth supporting. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that listens, that tells us you enjoy, you know, our podcast when we play against you on magic online or support on the discord, Patreon. You guys are all awesome. Agreed. Lord's is now also partnering with coalesce apparel and design magic's newest apparel company. And as part of that, we have a gift code for you to get 10% off your order, which pertains to any apparel on their website. But what you're really interested in is our Lords of Limited merchandise, let's be honest. And that code to get 10% off is LOL, all caps. As Ethan said, Christmas is right around the corner. If you want to maybe get that in in time for Christmas, would place those orders now, maybe for a friend, somebody at your shop that you think needs some Lords of Limited swag to really intimidate their opponents, head on over to coalesceapparel.shop. Yeah,
1: if you've been nice, you can get hashtag I'm with Ethan. And if you've been naughty, you can get hashtag I'm with Ben. Savage. ha <laughs> got him. All right, Ben, this week we're talking about build around. So I thought we'd do a build around table discussion here and look at a draft of mine.
0: I literally <laughs> when I when I read that in the show notes. <laughs> nice.
1: That's just your perfect kind of pun humor. Span director humor. Exactly. All right. So pack one, pick one. You see the following cards as options. Probably the only common worth speaking of is a common that I think we're going to be praising quite a lot today. Golden Egg, the two mana rock, comes into play, draws a card. You can sack it uh, to filter for a mana of any color or pay two, sack it to gain three life. Moving on to the uncommons. I want to talk about all of these, Ben. Because two of them, two of them are <laughs> naughty, and one of them is nice. Here, first up is Tournament Grounds. This is the land that uh, taps for colorless mana, or you can tap red, white, or black. Spend this mana only to cast a knight or equipment spell. Talk to me about Tournament Grounds, Ben. Naughty for
0: sure. Naughty. This card. I, I think it's
1: just literally unplayable.
0: Yeah, you had this. I I laughed also out loud at your tweet. You had this in a deck that had what? Four of the red, white uncommon knight.
1: Yeah, I was like, I was like, this has to be a time to play this card, right? I can play this eight mountains, eight plains. That gives me nine sources of each. So I can cast inspiring veteran on time. And I did have four of them.
0: Yeah. And then you still got punished because your opponent was at four and you had a slaying fire in hand, but not three red sources for your slaying fire.
1: Yeah. I was like, okay, this card is literally awful. It's just unplayable. And I think there's nothing more like butt scooching or like, I just really want to make sure I win the match when my opponent plays a tournament grounds or goes like mountain plain, swamp. It's just <laughs> awful. All right. So tournament grounds, Naughty. Next up, we've got OK Ranger. This is the Selesnya hybrid for Selesnya mana for a 2-2 elf knight. You can tap it to give creatures you control plus one plus one until end of turn. And there's also the adventure of bring back, which is for Selesnya to make 2-1-1 white human creature tokens at sorcery speed. Also naughty. Yeah, I feel like I think you were Skyping in on a draft that I did, and I had it in my sideboard and we could have cast it. And we had a lot of people asking in Twitch chat, like, why aren't you playing OK Ranger? And it seems fairly obvious to me
0: these days is that the card is just incredibly underwhelming. It's really bad. You really do need ways to make it better for it to be playable, not even to be good. Right. You really want you really want a lucky clover or something to that effect where bring back is doing more for you than just making two one ones right or
1: like you know heraldic banner or silver flame ritual things that are going to like augment the one ones but it's still so so expensive i've said this many times i really wish that you could curve out with this like that bring back was three selesnia mana instead of four but it's just very very clunky all right so two naughties that means the next one is nice ferocity of the wild tuna red for an enchantment attacking non-human creatures you control get plus one plus zero, and have trample
0: yeah you've really made me come around on this card i think you know Uh, quarter calls was an early champion of this card as well this really does a lot of work in the aggressive non-humans decks it does a lot of work helping your fairy tokens maybe push through a revenge of ravens or just make them into much bigger threats it amplifies Gingerbrute. it just does a lot of small things in the format and it's very similar to a card from guilds of ravnica called street riot And that card was stone unplayable, but this has played out very well in the format. What's the difference?
1: I think there's a lot of things working here. I think three mana versus five mana is a pretty big difference between this and Street Riot. And I also think like, I thought this was very restrictive in the non-human clause, but it turns out that just like, Red wants to beat down. A lot of Red's creatures are non-humans. It pairs really well with high power early drops like Rimrock Knight or Merrileaf Rider. Like being able to attack with those as 4-1 Tramplers is really good. Um, you know, there's just a lot of good aggressive stuff, especially in Red-Green. You get to pair it well with the like one drop aggro deck. I-, I just think like there's a lot of little synergy pockets that we missed in comparing this to cards that looked like this from previous sets that were unplayable.
0: You also went off with this in Dwarven Mine, yeah?
1: Yeah, so I had a deck that was mono red, had this and Heraldic banner, naming red, and five copies of Dwarven Mine. I played all of them, and it was just pretty sick to have your lands make one like three three ones. Three ones with trample, I should say.
0: Yeah, that was real good.
1: And our rare here in this pack is. Emery, lurker of the lock two and a blue for a one two legendary creature merfolk wizard costs one less to cast for each artifact you control when it etbs you put the top four cards of your library into your graveyard and you may tap it to choose target artifact card in your graveyard and you may cast that card this turn
0: Emery is my jam this is a sweet 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 build around that both you and i missed pretty hard on in this set review and we're going to be talking about that a lot this episode Emery, i think is just a build around a
1: yeah i think so It, it just again it It demands to be dealt with immediately. If you get to untap with it, like a lot of bombs you think of, if you get to untap with it, you're really doing it. Like you get to take over the game. Now it requires a lot of things from your deck, right? It does require that you have a density of artifacts. It also requires that you have artifacts that are going to make their way to the graveyard. But as it turns out, that's not a difficult thing to do because a lot of those artifacts that are easy to make their way to the graveyard are cards you want. And then it Build upon other synergies, right? Like, then this goes well with other things that care about artifacts and enchantments, or other things. If maybe you're in blue black and you're trying to recur stuff and you've got forever youngs, and so the self mill is not something you mind, or, you know, there's a lot of other ways that this works well in tandem with other strong build arounds, not just with itself and some artifacts.
0: Yeah. So we're slamming Emery Lurker the lock out of this pack as. Far and away, the best card in the pack. A little sad that we're shipping Golden Egg along and don't get to pick that here because it goes so well with the Emery, but happy to take Emery here, first pick. Uh, if Emery were not in the pack, would you take Ferocity over Golden Egg? I think so. There's something to be said for, I believe, now I haven't played
1: in like four days, so things could have shifted, but I think Ferocity is still pretty underrated on Magic Online. Like it wheels quite a bit. So, you know, you could take Golden Egg as just like, this is going to keep me open, but I'm going to maybe make some picks in the pack thinking that ferocity might wheel, but ferocity definitely has, I think, the highest upside of the remaining cards in the pack.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, so we're gonna take Emery here, moving on to pack one, pick two. You see the following cards as options. No commons really to write home about. There's a barrow witches or a malevolent noble. Um the only blue common is wishful merfolk. So nothing really good here. Uh, a rare is missing, so we've got three uncommons to choose from. There's shambling suit, the three mana star three construct. Its power is equal to the number of artifacts and or enchantments you control. Lock Dragon, which is the Quad Is It hybrid card, 3 2 Dragon Flyer when it ETBs or attacks. You may discard a card if you do draw a card. And Joust, one on a red sorcery. Choose target creature you control and target creature you don't control. They fight. But if the creature you control is a knight, it gets plus two, plus one until end of turn.
0: Yeah, I think you immediately narrow this down to Shambling Suit versus Lock Dragon. And this is where build arounds and build around rares especially start to get interesting because it really changes how you evaluate cards. And that's one of the most difficult things I think to do in magic and in teaching people how to draft. Because normally, if you start with a blue card and you're staring down this pack one, pick two of Lock Dragon versus Shambling Suit, like let's say you first picked Turn into a Pumpkin or something, you're 100% of the time taking Lock Dragon there, right? Because it matches up with your first pick, and Lock Dragon is a more powerful card in a vacuum than Shambling Suit. Correct. But once you've got Emery in your pile, the potential of Emery, if you do the things that Emery wants you to do, lets you put a card that's like an eight or a nine out of 10, probably a nine out of 10, I would say Emery is if you really get her in the right deck. Mm -hmm. And the difference in draft between a nine out of 10 and a seven out of 10 is so large, right? Seven out of 10 is something like bake into a pie. That's a very efficient removal spell, but it's not going to single handedly win you the game. Emery single handedly, if left unchecked, lets you win the game assuming you put the right pieces around her. And getting cards of that power level is not easy. And so the fact that you can create one through your draft picks means you should bias your draft picks. And I think it means Shambling Suit is the pick here over Lockdrag. Right. So
1: this is something that I I wanted to sort of dive into. And I think during the round table is, is maybe a good time to do so, which is like identifying build arounds that are worth warping your picks for. And I think how you're describing Emery is exactly the way to think about it, which is that you can turn her into a nine out of 10 in your deck. Like you can potentially turn her into the most powerful card in your deck based on the way you build your deck. Now we're not talking about like forcing it say, but as a tiebreaker here between shambling suit and lock dragon, lock dragon being more intrinsically powerful, but shambling suit being, I think also more flexible as it is colorless. But also pairing so well with Emery, just you want a full density of artifacts, not only because of Emery, but then maybe future picks that are also going to care about artifacts. I'd say Emery probably goes best in a blue-white deck. But I I think in any shell, really, if you've got the
0: pieces for it, she can do fine work as well. Absolutely. And I think Shambling Suit is much better than we gave it credit for initially as well, which we're going to get to a little bit later in the episode. Yeah, so we we'll grab Shambling
1: Suit here. So we've got Emery and Shambling Suit moving on to pack one, pick three. Now we've got some good comments to talk about. There's a Scalding Cauldron, a Reeve Soul, and an out muscle. And then nothing really in the uncommon department. The Flaxen Intruder, which is the one mana, one two in green that has Welcome Home as the adventure to make three two twos and Rally for the Throne, two and a white to make two one ones at instant speed. And uh, if you pay the adamant cost for it, you get to gain life for each creature you control.
0: Yeah, not interested in any of the uncommons here. I'm immediately narrowing this down to the three commons. And I think, you know, normally if you're at this point in a draft, you're trying to take good cards and feel out your lane. And I think the best card out of these three is Outmuscle. And so I think if we were drafting normally, I would be tempted to take out Muscle here and just see what comes, would be taking that as a green signal that maybe green is open and be trying to feel that lane out. And I think initially you and I were advocating pretty highly for taking Scalding Cauldron early so that you could feel the lane out. I'm a little lower on Scalding Cauldron now, mostly because I think the rest of the world is a little lower on Scalding Cauldron. And once you get past the first copy, it's not nearly as good. But again, since we've got Emery in our pile, I think the tiebreaker like Scalding Cauldron is you know, a, a C plus Outmuscle is probably like a B minus. And the fact that Scalding Cauldron goes up to like, maybe even a B in a deck with Emery, because you can reuse it and shoot down a creature every turn of your opponents gives it the nod here and makes it the pick over out muscle.
1: Well, the other thing that Emery does for your first copy of Scalding Cauldron here is it doesn't make future copies worse. Like normally, yes, I think Scalding Cauldron helps you stay open. So if that's what you're trying to do, but I think you and I have moved away from that position slightly also because we're so in on these powerful build arounds that you can get early that i think a lot of our early picks are like high risk high reward picks because we're not worried about making playables and we're just worried about like finding the best lane so scalding cauldron i think has gone down for me in that respect as well but with emery i'm like yeah sure i'll play two of these i'll play three of these i'm not mad about it because i want to make sure that when emery's around i have access to one yeah absolutely so that is what I grabbed here as well. Pack one, pick four. A lot of options here. There's four blue cards at common in the pack Witching Well, Unexplained Vision tome raider and moonlit scavengers as well as two artifacts in jousting dummy and ginger brute and then in the uncommons we've got turn into a pumpkin the three in a blue instant return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand draw card and if you pay adamant for it you make a food token
0: yeah so feeling great about where you're at right now and feeling very likely that is going to make your deck at least at this point yeah and so best card in the pack i think that you name there is turn into a pumpkin i think it's very close with witching well Because you have Emery. So normally, this would not be a close pick at all. You would just take Turn into a Pumpkin over Witching Well, unless you were in like, no, even in the blue red card draw deck, you still take Turn into a Pumpkin. Yeah. So I think Emery being able to rebuy Witching Well, though, for a single mana and get that Scry 2 is worth considering, but you probably don't need multiple copies of Witching Well, and you're likely, if blue is open, to see another copy of Witching Well. And so I think you just take the higher power level card here and Turn into a Pumpkin. But again, this pick is a lot closer than it would normally be because of Emory. Yeah, I agree with all the points you made, and I did land on Turn Into a Pumpkin, but felt
1: really good about where I was at seeing how many blue cards and artifacts were in that pack. So blue continued to be pretty open. I grabbed a Scorching Dragonfire next, and then pack one pick six, saw an Arcanist's Owl, which was awesome, but I really towed the line... Not really deciding what my second color was going to be until the end of pack two. I was sort of thinking I could have possibly been mono blue, Um, but then I got like an Archon of Absolution and some Flutter Foxes. So I decided to to end up with a blue-white deck here, maximizing Emery.
0: Yeah, but I think the beginning of this draft is especially interesting for what we're about to talk in the episode because you make those different picks because you have a build around as powerful as Emery. And we'll continue to talk about those sorts of things that you're looking for and what cards go up in value with each of these build arounds from Throne of Eldraine. Yeah, so I wanted to sort of pose a
1: question to you, Ben, in, in your process of going from set review to you know crash course recording, hearing my thoughts to actually getting your hands on the cards of like what makes you decide maybe in your initial evaluations of cards what makes a good build around versus what doesn't. So you know a lot of the cards we're going to talk about today are cards that maybe we missed on, like MRAM, and you both you and I gave those like low C's, high D's grades, but. Things like, you know, Trail of Crumbs or Improbable Alliance, we were pretty high on. And I think those are both build arounds as well. So I'd love to just pick your brain about what your process is in navigating those cards.
0: I think Trail of Crumbs and Improbable Alliance are a little easier to peg as build around. So Trail of Crumb is the new mechanic. It's food and it it oozes power level. And, you know, we could determine just from looking at the set that there were enough food things to make a card like that tick. And then Improbable Alliance, the draw two synergy, I think that was one of the more in-your-face synergies in the set from the blue-red color pair. So you can look at those and it's fairly easy to say they're going to be good. Now, how good is something that, you know, we adjust after playing with the cards, but I think went into those with a pretty high degree of confidence that those were going to be good. I think considering something a card worth building around would be something that I think can make my deck significantly more powerful than it would be without that sort of synergy. So taking something like Trail of Crumbs, you know, if in Black Green Food, you have a Trail of Crumbs, you have a huge card advantage engine. And Trail of Crumbs, if you put it in the right deck, again, is going to be, you know, probably an eight out of 10 when you get the right synergy pieces around it. So cards like that, that you have the potential to make into high power leveled cards, because those cards are few and far between. I think that's what I'm thinking about when I want to build around a card.
1: And let's say there are cards like Emery that you sort of dismiss or give lower grades to in the set review, then how do you change your evaluations of that? Are you opening it up, pack one, pick one, and going YOLO week one, let me give it a shot? Or are you waiting to sort of see it on the other side of the battlefield, see it in Discord, see it on Twitter before you start to go, okay, this seems to be gaining traction. If that's true, how do I change my pick orders if I see that card?
0: I generally trust my first read of the cards. So initially, you know, I had rated Emery pretty low. I would not have taken Emery early and tried to build around it. But the way I change my evaluation of the cards is I'm at the beginning of the set. I am constantly talking to you. I'm constantly talking in the discord and I'm paying a lot of attention to what my opponents are doing when I'm playing the games. And I played against Emery in the first week or so. And as soon as it hit the battlefield, I was like, oh, I get it. (laughs) This card's great. Like all it took was seeing it on my opponent's side of the battlefield and they had milled an artifact and I think they had a golden egg in play and I knew they were going to be able to draw cards every turn the rest of the game if they wanted to. And I was like, oh, Emery's great. I need to take that card and I need to play with it. And then after playing with it more and talking you know, more, we all arrived, I think, collectively that Emery was borderline bomb status if you built around it.
1: So this is the thing that I feel like is my biggest hurdle in terms of going from card valuation to seeing cards in play. When I have that moment of like the card immediately just hits the battlefield and it's just a light bulb moment, it makes me feel kind of stupid because it feels like I should have been able to make that conclusion or craft a board state or imagine this card in play and what it was going to do. But there's like often this disconnect where I feel like I'm not able to quite get there.
0: Well, I think we're going to talk about this with Emery, but I think one of the biggest reasons we missed with Emery was you and I both graded the artifacts low across the board. Right.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a, a perfect segue to get into talking about all the artifacts that we sort of missed on, or at least we were really low on the common artifacts and even most of the uncommon artifacts which led us to think that blue white artifact enchantments matters wasn't going to be good and anything that cared about artifacts or enchantments was just sort of intrinsically meh because even something like Arcanist's owl seemed kind of meh i mean a four mana three three flyer is good but like it felt like well what are you going to draw off of this because all the artifacts and enchantments that common and uncommon are kind of poopy. Absolutely.
0: So I think without further ado, let's take a listen back to a clip of Shambling Suit and see where we were at on a card like Shambling Suit. Next up, we've got Shambling Suit. I gave us a Synergy C plus, you gave us a D. This is three mana for a star three and its power is equal to the number of artifacts and or enchantments you control.
1: I'm not excited about having, maybe I'm just totally underrating the white blue artifacts and enchantments deck. But again, this just seems like such a medium payoff. Like, ooh, I have to work hard for my three mana
0: three three? Well, but it's it's intrinsically a one three. If you have one other food token lying around, it's a two three. And I think there's going to be sometime in the late game where it's a four three or a five three. I mean, it's not great, but it's also not bad.
1: Yeah. At
0: what point do you start taking this like it's a C plus, though? Well, maybe C plus is high. Maybe it's a synergy C. But like, you're going to have to draft blue white sometimes. And when you do... This is going to make your deck. OK, that's fair. Synergy C. This is so embarrassing, Ben. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing. And I do think it's better than that. Like I my, my wavelength was more the correct wavelength, but I think I even undersold it a little bit. If you make this card into a four three, you're really happy about it because finding the artifacts that are good are really key pieces to making that blue white artifacts deck tick. Well, here's another thing that we missed or that I missed at least is that
1: food tokens are artifacts. And so Shambling Suit not only has been impressive to me in decks where I'm a blue based artifacts matter deck, but in black green food decks where this can easily just be a five, three for three mana.
0: Right, right, right.
1: like this in conjunction with trail of crumbs which is an enchantment that makes a food token like there's just a lot of those things that i feel like i missed and the floor of a colorless three mana one three i mean that is kind of low but it isn't hard to bump it up to a two three to talarian scholar status and then anything beyond that is kind of gravy you know
0: yep absolutely anything beyond that is absolute gravy all right what's up next here on our misses crashing drawbridge i give this a d you gave this an f you're pretty high on this card now
1: Yeah, well, I think I'm even higher than you. Like, it sounded like, at least when we talked last week, that you were only looking for this card in blue-white decks.
0: I've since come around. I think it's very good in decks with large green beaters as well. I have played a lot more this week, so I have a much clearer picture of cards like this where I just didn't have enough reps with drawbridge.
1: Yeah. So I think the thing that makes drawbridge impactful is being able to haste out or add haste to powerful green threats that are ahead of curve, like a 4-4 Witchstalker and then into like a 5-5 Paladin. Giving those haste does feel worth a card. And I do think now I just need to change my initial evaluations of cards like this. Like, you remember, what was the one the one mana 1-1 one, one in M19 that you could tap to give target creature haste until end of turn? It was Goblin Motivator, I want to say. That sounds right. But that card was like a really key piece to the red-white aggro deck, and that wasn't a deck that I... Th- really was high on as much as everybody else was, but it was worth a card. Like there were times when I would see it on the other side of the battlefield and it, you know, struck fear in my heart. And I think drawbridge does a similar thing. So I think this kind of effect tacked onto a card that then is like a relevant type in the format, in artifact. Like I think this is an effect that I'm going to look out for in the future and not be so low on.
0: What's your new grade? Uh,
1: Synergy C
0: minus. Yeah, I think I'm on Synergy C.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that you only want one in the decks where you want it, and you just should be able to pick up one copy in the draft. That's why I feel like you don't need to give it a super high grade. But in those like green beef decks, I think you do
0: actively want one. All right. Next up is Ginger Brute. I gave us a D plus. You gave us a D.
1: Yeah. So I think we were also, or at least I'll speak for myself, that this was a pretty slow learning curve for me in terms of coming to the appropriate grade on this card? Like there were many, many weeks where people were like, "No, Gingerbread decks are real." And I was like,
0: "This card is still garbage." So what changed for you with your evaluation of this card? Well, I think you and I both saw fairly early the pieces to the mono-green aggro deck. I just don't think you or I drafted it very early on in the format, but I do think we missed brute going in that deck. Or at least I did. I didn't have brute in my head with the pieces of like thorn Halberd, Wildwood Tracker, you know, Garen Brig Carver to pump the things, yeah. that sort of stuff, Mara Leaf Rider. Gingerbrute was not in my head in those collection of cards. And then I think there are just way more ways to pump this that are cards that you actively want that we missed. And I think, again, we undersold artifact synergies. And there's times when you want a Gingerbrute just to have an artifact. Maybe you're going to slap in all the glitters on it in an aggressive, slanted version of blue, white artifacts, enchantments. It just does a lot of little things. And a, a card that's that flexible, I think, has a lot of value.
1: And I'll tack on to that, that I think it goes well in the red-green non-humans deck. And there's flavors of that, like some of them are more hyper-aggressive, some of them are more mid-range, more slanted red, more slanted green, but that deck is very real. And the fact that this can get pumped with Ferocity of Wilds or Grumgully, or it's like a really easy way to draw cards with Keeper of Fables, there's a lot of tiny, tiny little pockets of synergy with this card that really just make it worthwhile. This feels like a thing that I don't feel super bad about missing on because there's so many tiny pieces of interaction that I don't think you can glean from looking at a set review, no matter how deeply you pour into it. I think
0: it just has to come with reps. That makes sense to me. Next up, all hail the golden egg, Ben. I love this card so much. I was on this card pretty early on. I'm going to give myself some credit here. Mm -hmm. I was, I was championing it in week one. And then in week two, I was like, this is borderline one of the best commons, which I think was probably overselling it, but I think I was headed in the right direction with my thought process just because that was when we were realizing how important the mana bases were, which is another thing I think you and I could have seen If we had taken a more holistic look at the set, I think maybe one of the things we want to start doing in the set review or the crash course rather is looking at the mechanics and what sort of broad picture things the mechanics are asking of you. Like so adamant, like when we looked at it, I think to me was, okay. you're going to use adamant stuff in a monocolor deck. But I think if you take some time to think about it, too, you're going to realize that you're going to play adamant things in non-monocolored decks. And then what does that do to your mana bases? I think that's something you could have extrapolated from looking at the set as a whole that we did not take the time to do necessarily. And I think I'm going to try to going forward ask myself in regards to the mechanics for the new sets, what do they mean in broad strokes for like deck construction, format, speed, things like that. Yeah. I think, you know, in our
1: defense, even with Watsi coming out and saying, hey, there should be like two monocolored drafters per table and us like figuring that out and taking it to heart and really like trusting that adamant was a thing we- we've not seen mono decks this supported in our podcast's lifetime and in certainly i think even in limited sets since i've come back to playing like since scars of merit and onward like this kind of deck just doesn't really exist in limited and so even seeing the things for it i think it was a sort of like trust issue thing for me a little bit to be like, is this really going to be good? And or if it's available, how good is that deck going to be once it comes together? But yeah, I totally agree that I think looking at the mechanics and then what that asks of you deck building wise is is an important thing to take moving forward.
0: Well, but I think even the the more important thing is that sometimes that you're trying to end up with a 12-5 mana base. And in a 12-5 mana base, golden egg goes up in value a lot. Or if you want 12 six. and then all of a sudden having that one golden egg gives you your seventh source to really be able to play a double black card card, like bake into a pie or something much more comfortably than you would have otherwise. So
1: do you think we could have, if we had thought a lot more about what Adamant meant in particular, we could have maybe seen this as one of the top commons? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, and Another card that we uh, missed on pretty hard, one of our preview cards, Jousting Dummy. This goes in the category of cards that look like bad versions of cards we've seen before but aren't. I gave this a D plus and you gave this
0: a D. I think I just got it, gave it the slight bump because it was a knight. This is now my most drafted comment on Magic Online.
1: Whoa.
0: It's my boy. I love Uh, jousting dummy. Yeah.
1: This is another card that I think we can probably give ourselves a pass on. But there also were clues like we knew there weren't things that punished X ones really early, like in the crash course.
0: Yeah, I think we called that. And I think if you can do that and then but I think, again, we just didn't understand how important having an artifact going to the graveyard was going to be. Like the fact that this is an artifact, it does trade off for something. Sometimes you care about artifacts in your graveyard. Sometimes you care about artifacts on the battlefield. So a card that's a relevant creature type, permanent type and is cheap and like just does a thing. I think it just does a lot of work. Yeah, I think that it's really the big miss on artifacts.
1: Do you think there was a way we could have just bumped all the artifacts up in terms of what they give you with flexibility? And then also, I think that probably pairs into us thinking about like, hey, monocolor decks or close to monocolor decks are going to be a thing in this format. And so then colorless cards go up in value.
0: Right. I think that's something we could have seen. Yeah. Like I was pretty low on Hengewalker because I didn't think about Hengewalker as, okay, this is a good filler thing for a monocolor deck. It didn't really occur to me how much you were going to be scrapping for maybe your 20 through 23rd cards when you're going monocolor, when it's not going super smooth. Right.
1: Or seeing it as like, this is the like wheel payoff for the monocolor decks, which is really what it is. You're like, oh, I got to snap that up. Ninth pick, 10th pick.
0: Right which was our next card. Speaking of Hengewalker, I gave it a D minus, you gave it a Synergy C. So it sounds like you were on the right wavelength there with that card.
1: Yeah, I think I was trusting about the monocolor decks being a
0: real thing. And I think Synergy C plus is probably where I'd land on it today. And next up, we've got Clockwork Servant. You and I both gave this a C plus, and it's actually better than that, but we were in the right direction on this card. Yeah. So why do you think we were so much higher on this than other
1: sort of Adamant colorless cards. Like, why so high on this versus Hengewalker?
0: Because it says draw a card on it, and you and I are both suckers.
1: Yeah, that's true. Well, I think we also knew from the start, like, we understood, look, as long as you get into your fifth land with a two color deck, you will draw a card off of this when you cast it. And then just being able to play a Talarian Scholar on curve that's colorless is good. Now, I will say that I've like was super high on this card and have come down on it slightly because, you know, a three mana, two, three in some decks, even like, let's say in a red, white aggressive deck or any sort of aggressively slanted deck, this card isn't very good because you don't really want either half of it. You don't really want a three mana, two, three, and you don't really want a five mana three drop that draws you a card.
0: Right, I agree with that. Next up, we've got your boy. This is Heraldic Banner. I give us a C minus, you give us a Synergy C. Talk to me about Heraldic Banner.
1: Okay, so the thing that I feel like I locked in on Heraldic Banner was you only want this in a monocolored deck. And I'm assuming that mono decks are going to be aggressive because that's a deck where you care about both halves of the thing. You care about it ramping you and you care about it giving plus one, plus o to all your creatures. Anything less than that, I felt like wasn't going to be good. Like I didn't want to play this in a two-color deck because I wouldn't think that it's worth a card to have a three-mana rock that gives half of my team plus one, plus o. But what I missed on this was that it does let you splash slash ramp And it's an artifact, again, which cards care about, just like everything that we gave a low grade to that's an artifact just gets a bump up. But it also goes super well with token makers like Improbable Alliance or Mad Ratter or Stolen by the Fae. And those are all things that I think I missed on. I usually look for tokens in white and white doesn't really have tokens, but in other colors that does exist.
0: Right. And I think we didn't necessarily know quite how oppressive Revenge of Ravens was going to be. And Heraldic Banner is really a way for those token decks that rely on the 1-1 fairies and the 1-1 rats to beat Revenge of Ravens. Exactly. We've got another clip for you here. This is sort of a package of cards, but one that maybe looks the most innocuous of the bunch. I certainly missed on this card. This is Witch's Oven. Let's hear what we have to say about this.
1: All right, our last card here before we get into our top commons and uncommons is Witch's Oven, the Ethan Sachs card. Single mana artifact. Tap, sac a creature, create a food token. If the sacrificed creature's toughness was four or greater, create two food tokens instead. I gave this a build around C+, you gave this a D. Yeah, I don't love it. Yeah, it's a free sacrifice outlet. It makes food tokens... It's good against people playing the like artifact in, or the enchantment based removal. It's very good with my little one drop cat. There's not a ton of ways to like make food tokens repeatedly.
0: I agree with that assessment. I just don't know that this is like such card disadvantage to go about making food tokens. I mean, this is a whole card. Like, are you really telling me like how many creatures do you have to sacrifice to this before you're happy about using it as a card?
1: Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's it's a like great three, question.
0: Three, four, five? I yeah. mean, like there's a there's a green uncommon that makes three food tokens potentially, and I'm not excited about that card at all. And that doesn't take any work. Oh, I'm very the one that can also be a seven seven? Well, I'm excited about the seven seven portion of it, but I'm, You're I'm not less excited about, about food. Yeah. No.
1: I, I don't know. I like I Maybe this is just bad, but it seems like this could slot into a black, green, grindy value deck. It could even slot into maybe like a blue, black, I'm trying to fill my graveyard deck if I can use the food tokens. But maybe it's just too, too slow.
0: Well, you haven't answered the question. How many food tokens do you have to bake? How much baking are you doing before you're happy?
1: I don't know I that, that I think it depends on where what I can do with those tokens but like I could see the potential of like making three or four and being happy with it
0: I think I would be much closer to four to five okay
1: yeah maybe this is just too bad I just want it to be good I think that's it
0: man I was so aggro there in that clip yeah
1: I, I, you really put, put me up against it on, on a lot of those cards. I think the point system brings
0: out the best in me,
1: or the worst, as it were. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> so here's a thing that I want to talk about in the broader scope of this format, which is food tokens. And I think this sort of dives into like the oven, cat, sorcerer's broom, life that we sort of missed on, but food Tokens were hard to evaluate for me. I think we were like, does this mean that aggro decks are going to be terrible because everyone can gain life? Or is this just the other end of the spectrum where it's way too slow to be able to spend two mana to gain three life?
0: I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, but I do think we were on the right track because my, my stance going into it was that food was not going to make aggro unplayable. And aggro is alive and well in this format, as we have seen week after week. Right, because it is a very significant cost to pay two mana to tap and sacrifice your food, which is something that's awesome about, you know, the the oven that we missed in tandem with broom. I had no thought of Witch's Oven doing anything with Sorcerer's Broom. We sort of missed the Holy Trinity here. But the fact that you have a free sacrifice outlet then to be able to pay six to make two brooms is pretty big game. Yes, absolutely.
1: As I was, you know, looking at the cards that we missed on and thinking about where my head was at at the time, I think a lot of the stuff that we're going to get to when we look at the, the build around rares in a, in a moment is that a lot of my feeling or a lot of my hesitancy about cards like this like broom like oven I often feel like I'm like this is too slow it reminded me of our grading of City's Blessing cards from Rivals of Ixalan now Rivals of Ixalan was sort of just a much slower format in general and that like it wasn't really a curve out format it was really like you just load it up on three drops that sort of thing But it was not that hard to get to the City's Blessings if you were in, you know, those Esper-based decks. Now, for folks who didn't play Rivals of Exelon, City's Blessing was a thing you got when you had 10 or more permanents uh, in play. You got this token that was the City's Blessing, and then that, like, augmented a bunch of your cards. I think pumping 3 mana into Sorcerer's Broom or pumping 2 mana into Food Tokens just, like, seemed, quote-unquote, slow to me kind of how like folio fancies was underrated. Like you just look at it and go, well, you're just spending three mana to do nothing. I think we have a lot of like, not maybe worst case scenario mentalities around a lot of these cards just going well under duress of my opponent going two drop three drop, four drop. Can I do these things? And the answer is no, but the, the, the actual reality of those situations is much more gray. It's much more like maybe your opponent went two drop into four drop, but your three drop length or two drop or things like that, you know? Right. Well, I
0: think some of it stems from, you know, the cards that we miss the most on is the cards just fail the quadrant theory test so hard. But I think we maybe need to get beyond that a little bit when we're evaluating some of these build around rares. So in the sense
1: of what? Like just being more optimistic about them? Like in the sense of Ryan Sachs's attitude of
0: being optimistic with aggro decks or something else? Yeah, I think that. When the, when the when the power level is there, like if you can see... So something like fire has been mentioned, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit. <laughs> when, you can, when you can see that the power level is there, if you get to this certain situation... I think that's when maybe we need to deviate from this card as a do nothing enchantment and try to look at, okay, well, how do we get it to do its thing? Because its thing is really powerful. Like there's times when the setup cost is worth it, right? And Sorcerer's Broom, you know, three mana to make a two one is really slow, but it's all upside, right? If, yeah. you, if you don't need to make the two one, great. Your Sorcerer's Broom was a two mana two one artifact that wasn't, you know, as a non-human, which is great in the format already. And then if you go off with it it could potentially win the game yeah for sure
1: all right well let's let's talk about these rares baby the the ones that we were maybe hot on cold on and then just totally whiffed on all
0: right so first up is emery this is the one we talked about in the round table today i gave us a build around d plus you give us a build around c I think this is
1: a less controversial one now. I think the community at large is sort of in for Emory being a build around, you know, at least I would say high Bs, if not build around bomb status.
0: And I think the reason we missed on Emory, as we alluded to in the beginning of the episode, was that we were low on all the artifacts. That's why we took the time to go through all those artifacts and sort of talk through why we missed and maybe what we could do to avoid that in the future. And I think if we had graded the artifacts appropriately and maybe seen the synergy with Cauldron and Egg that are good artifacts, that already want to go to the graveyard, I think we should have been higher on Emory.
1: I agree with that. Next on the list is, again, I think a card that's not super controversial in the community at large. It's Folio of Fancies.
0: We're going to hear what Ethan and Ben of the past had to say about Folio. Can we talk quickly for a second about Folio of Fancies? This is a blue rare. I give us an F. Oh, yeah. A B. Oh, this card's great. No, this card is garbage. Okay, so Folio Fancies is
1: one in the blue for an artifact. It's a rare. It says players have no maximum hand size. You can pay XX tap for each player to draw X cards and two blue tap for each opponent to put a number of cards equal to the number of cards in their hand from the top of their library into their graveyard. This is like
0: grindstone or millstone. This is so bad. Here's what's going to happen with this card. You're going to pay six mana to have each of you draw three cards. And then your opponent is going to spend their mana to play things that kill you while you're trying to spend more mana of yours to activate this, not advance your board and mill them out. And they're going to kill you before you get there on milling them out because they're going to be deploying the cards from their hand because they're going to be hitting their land drops because you're giving them cards. I'm not
1: activating this first line of text like almost ever, maybe once, like after they're out of cards in their hand. But like, I'm just looking at at this as a mill card.
0: So you're, you're doing what? Two blue target player puts what, two cards into their library?
1: Yeah, you mill, you mill them a few times and maybe you give them some more cards, but it's on their end step, so you get to untap and do stuff. Look, I, I think blue-black is trying to get people to have like seven or more cards in their graveyard. This helps you do that. I feel like this is a, maybe I need to give it like a build around B, but this seems like it could be a win condition. Maybe I'm totally wrong about how much I can mill my
0: opponent with this, but I don't know. You that's, what, that's what I think. I think your opponent's going to be emptying their hand. If you're ever giving them cards, they're hitting their land drops and they're able to cast all those cards, right? Because you're not going to be doing this until the late stages of the game. I guess that's true. Like why I'm not I play
1: this on turn two and then I can't really activate it for a few turns anyway. This cause. card is bad. All right. You're right. I will go to a D for this card. Thanks a lot, Ben. I didn't know that we could dip into rares and just call people out like that. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> so savage. Wow. Ben, you are ruthless. I know. That's what I was thinking. This point system brings out the worst in me. (laughs) So until I think I sort of had it right until I decided it was also a D.
0: Yeah, I think you were absolutely right about this card. And I think the things I missed were one, the presence of like cheap interaction, like Merfolk Secret Keeper and so tiny that you can draw when you make both people draw and you can use less mana than your opponent to keep up with blocking or negating their threats. And just how how real the mill deck was and how quickly it could mill people out. And I think which is shocking for me, because normally I'm all about trying to make a mill deck that's not even really there. Mm-hmm. And it was actually there this time. And then I think the other thing that I missed was that you could activate this in the draw step uh, to sort of get an extra card along the way. And just how quickly if you played it on turn two and you would just activate, 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 that it milled your opponent out. Right. I think that goes along with like thinking about it in
1: sort of best case scenario what you could do with it and there have been certainly times when my opponents have played it or i've played it and i felt like i can't afford to activate this but the truth is much more in the middle of those scenarios and i think certainly then making those deck building considerations or drafting considerations of like merfolk Seeker keeper and so tiny so tiny i think is the real key so that you can on turn four activate this and have ways to interact with your opponent stuff that's the really important stuff and then yeah just as as you talked about just to touch on you know mill is always some sort of like niche archetype in limited there's always like a couple cards that have your opponent put some number of cards in their library into their graveyard and the deck is just by and large always bad and this format i think certainly arena doesn't help that arena gives a sort of warped version of this deck but this deck is real and didn't say please is very real. And secret keeper is very real in conjunction with runaway together. Um, Even that like, Overwhelming apprentice, or whatever it is, the one, two in blue that mills two, like that sometimes has a place. So, all of that, I think we kind of get a pass on just because mill. I think the, the heuristic of mill is not a good archetype and limited is generally correct, but here it did break the
0: mold. Right. Well, and I think we underrated just how backbreaking this was in a control mirror. Like, this card is just re- great regardless of what else is going on in a control mirror and how it punishes like one of the
1: mechanics, which is drawing multiple cards a turn
0: yeah that too yeah next up we got midnight clock i gave us a d you gave us a synergy c uh what sort of synergy was going on there bud (laughs) i don't know
1: i don't know what i was thinking like mana rocks generally have applications in limited even the three mana ones but especially in blue where you just have a lot of card draw and at common we have witching well and unexplained vision so i don't really know what synergy i was looking at the fact that this is ramp and a mana sink and a payoff all in one, this just feels, there, there isn't like you got to put this in the context of the set sort of thing. Like I just missed hard on this card.
0: Well, I'll tell you what I missed. I missed that this triggered on both people's upkeeps. And as soon as I knew that probably would have given it a C plus B minus. And I still think I would have been low. This card is just an A minus B plus. It's, it's very good.
1: Yeah. It's so weird. Like I'm so always loath to give cards a minus or a level grades that aren't like actual bomb status and this is about as close as you can get with just like an artifact that taps for mana it's better than all the uncommons it's better than sir conrad
0: yes 100 percent agree next up we've got fires of invention my pet card we're going to take a listen to this clip i am going to throw another pop rare quiz at you here
1: oh this is good i wanted to talk about this
0: I am loving Fires of Invention. Yeah, I think you're very wrong about this. So I give us a build around B plus and you give us an F. Fires of Invention is an enchantment for three and a red. You can only cast spells during your turn and you cannot cast more than two spells each turn you can cast spells with converted mana costs less than or equal to the amount of land you control without paying their mana costs.
1: Ben, this doesn't draw you cards. This is just card disadvantage and it just makes stuff cheaper. This can't be worth it.
0: But if you put card draw in your deck, so picture this. Oh, let me ask you this. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe you don't love this card. I see so much potential here. It's such an Ethan card. No. Ugh. So you play this on turn four, turn five, You cast a card draw spell and play another spell and then you're just off to the races and you're playing two cards every turn because you're hitting your land drops because you're drawing cards. If this is in your deck with card draw and you hit this and cast a card draw spell after it, you're playing two like four plus CMC cards every turn.
1: No, that assumes that your deck is full of like four drops and five drops. How many draw threes can you put in your deck even with this? That's the dream, right? Yeah, but I think that dream is a nightmare.
0: No, I, oh man, I really want to make this card work.
1: I can't wait for you to show me your 3-0 or 7x or 5x deck that had this in it, but I don't think it's going to happen. Well, it did happen. In my defense here, and you just totally nailed this card from the beginning, the thing that makes this card
0: great is something you didn't mention, which is Mana Sinks. Well, and I think the other thing that we didn't explicitly mention is that when you play this on four, you get to play another card the turn you play it, so you don't have to take a turn off to play it. And I knew that, I just didn't say it in my argument there. Yeah.
1: So I think the thing that really makes this card tick, and you know, it didn't take long. We, I think it was in the uh, streamer early access event that we were both part of, uh, sponsored by Watsi, where you had this in one of your sealed pools and went off. I think you went six three with the deck, and it didn't. I was just like, oh, he's doing it. I see why this card is powerful. But the thing that really makes it tick for me is Merchant of the Veil vale at common. Right, because then you almost triple your mana on your turn. Right. I mean, you get to rummage away all excess lands. Like Ideally, you probably just get to six, and then you can like double rummage when you don't want the lands or find the impactful spells. So you're using your mana... Plus, getting to cast two spells per turn—it's really busted. I mean, th- like mana sinks, like Merchant or Improbable Alliance or Spinning Wheel. Spinning Wheel, exactly. Like that's what really makes you go, "Oh, I just used like sixteen mana in every turn cycle," and that's how you just really
0: blow your opponent out of the water with this card. And so, once you've got Fires of Invention, let's say, like, where are you picking a card like Merchant of the Vale? What are you taking it over? Are you taking it over Searing Barrage? Yes. Are you taking it over deal three? What's that card called? Scorching
1: Dragonfire. I'm probably not taking it over Scorching Dragonfire. But like, at what point, like, am I taking it over the second copy? Maybe I'm certainly taking it over the third copy. But I really want to make sure I have at least two, ideally three merchants in a deck with Fires of Invention.
0: Right. And one of the other things that goes really well with Fires of Invention, if you're trying to build this deck, is Witching Well, because then you have that already on the battlefield. So it doesn't count as one of your two spells. And you can pay your mana to crack the Witching Well to draw your cards. And then you still get to play two actual cards. Like you're not using one of your two spells for the turn mm-hmm. to cast your spell with Fires of Invention. I've had uh,
1: my hand caught in the cookie jar a little bit with Fires of Invention and Midnight Clock. Where like you just like draw seven and then you're like, I wish Fires of Invention wasn't here. I want... To cast more than two spells a
0: turn <laughs> there does come a point in the fires decks where you don't want to play fires anymore i've been in that as well like if you're really doing it and you're really hitting your land drop sometimes you can just triple spell without the fires but it is very powerful when it comes down on turn four a turn into a pumpkin goes a long way in that scenario where you're just like i would like to pick this up for a few turns and then i'll replay it later right absolutely yeah so i think things you're looking if you want to build around fires is card draw and places to put your mana all right so i want to put you on the spot here a little bit again which is Why do you think you nailed this
1: card? And like, I missed on it. I think a lot of people are still sort of maybe down on this card. I I get a lot of people coming into Twitch chat, seeing it in my pile and being like, what are we doing with this card in limited? Like, why do you think you saw so clearly how this card worked?
0: I think I knew that the turn that you played it, you could play another spell. So I knew you weren't normally the disadvantage with those types of cards is you have to take the turn off to play the thing and then you're getting beaten down. And that disadvantage was gone. So I knew that the card immediately solved that problem. And then the only other thing that kept you from doing absolutely busted stuff was just like lack of gas. So then if you put card draw on your deck, you solved that problem. And then you just were doing awesome things. I think if you could draw cards, I think I saw those two pieces and I don't even think I knew about the mana sync part so much, but I was just excited about double spelling every turn after I played Fires as and not have to take a turn off to do that. Yeah, yeah
1: card is very powerful if you haven't tried it yet we would highly recommend it and i think that goes with all of the build arounds we're talking about today absolutely edgewall innkeeper is up next this is just my you know time to atone for my sins here you gave this a build around b minus i give this a d now in my defense i was higher on this in my initial grade and then i was doing my uh on stream review with uh travis Sowers, and he sort of talked me down with what i think now in retrospect is sort of like faulty logic you know we're talking about adventures as being two for ones and like this makes your two for ones three for ones and that's just like that feels like kind of win more or something and win more is sort of a, a phrase that i think gets thrown around probably too much but also just like adventures are the like one of the headliner mechanics of the format it's this like new card type this is a payoff for having multiples of those just feels like you gotta trust when a card like this exists at uncommon that this is a like headliner limited build around
0: right this was this is in the mold of the trail of crumbs improbable alliance territory yeah for sure well
1: then let's just you know, jump ahead here in the show notes and talk about the other half of this, which is Lucky Clover. And you and I both missed pretty hard on this. You gave this a build around D and I just gave it a straight up D.
0: Yeah, I think the difference for me between those two cards is Lucky Clover just fails Quadrant Theory so hard, whereas yeah. Edge Wall Keeper doesn't it's a build around like right so and it's gonna and it's gonna recoup the card disadvantage lucky clover just reads like straight card disadvantage to me did you listen to the latest episode of limited level
1: ups i did i love limited level ups i do too except it is a tongue twister to say i will say i don't envy them having to introduce their show that way but i think that they really nailed lucky clover looking at it under quadrant theory in terms of like looking at a card like queen of ice which seems like it's pretty good in Quadrant Theory, but actually it's kind of poop soup in this format. Um, Lucky Clover is really hard to evaluate. It's hard to imagine the scenarios where doubling that effect is going to be good. Because I think the other thing that is hard to um, nail in the crash course is, you know, we sort of try and give these broad strokes of, well, green-white is the adventure payoff color pair or whatever but there are adventures in all five colors and really where lucky clover shines or where the effects are like so great is kind of outside of green white you know thinking about things like animating fairy where you can go like one drop artifact into lucky clover and to make two four fours that are attacking or milling eight with merfolk secret keeper or having people discard four with reaper of night all of those things are things that i didn't even think about but i didn't even like really care to think about i didn't look at a card like lucky clover and go all right, you know what I should do? I should go and look at all the adventures and really think about how that can apply to this card.
0: And it, it's tricky, right? Because you have to do the work to make Lucky Clover good. And it's not immediately obvious like it is with Edgewall Innkeeper. But I think the power level is there just as much.
1: Yeah, agree. All right, we got a couple rares here that sort of go in tandem together coming up on the end here. First up is Dance of the Mance. Ben, always with the just giving people the benefit of the doubt. Ben, give it a build around D. Even putting the nail in the coffin with an F.
0: Yeah, I think this card looks, if you look at it initially, it looks too slow, right? You're going to have to have eight mana to do the thing. And we thought all of the artifacts were pretty bad. But I think what we didn't give this card credit for is if you do do the thing, you probably win the game. And that's really hard, though, to give that kind
1: of grade or that kind of confidence in a card that you're essentially saying is an eight drop. Right, right.
0: It's an eight drop that you have to build around. Right. You have to put you have to put it like so set up cost super high, right? But if you pay the cost and you do the thing, you win the game. Yeah.
1: That's the thing that I think is the hardest to evaluate with these rares and the hardest to like dive into. It took me getting beaten by this card, and maybe even multiple times before I was like, okay, this seems possible games are going long enough or decks are able to be built with defensive speed enough where you can go off with this card. I want to try it. And then you realize, and this package of egg cauldron. Well, like they go with Emery goes with dance of the Mance So perfectly, you also get access to some ramp like heraldic banner or spinning wheel to maybe mitigate some of that cost of it being an eight drop. Um, But it's a hard card to wrap your head around in a vacuum.
0: Well, and I think we should say with a little bit of a disclaimer here, this is less good than Emery and Fires, I think, and certainly Folio. This is the most finicky and the most tricky to build around.
1: Yes, but is still a very, like, what would you give it now? Build around B? Build around B+. Plus? I mean, I'm giving it a build around an A+. Plus. This has train wrecked <laughs> so many of my drafts. <laughs> well, the thing, the thing that's happening for me recently is like every draft, I either see Dance of the Mance or Fires of Invention or like Fae of Wishes. And I just feel like, I'm like, well, if people are going to let me do the sweet thing over and over again, I'm going to try and do the sweet thing. Right. So realistically, it's probably a
0: build around B-. minus. Build around B? Yeah. I mean, you you want to be in... This is... I don't think proper drafting is taking Dance of the Manse and drafting the artifact deck. I think you want to be in the artifact enchantment deck already, like have blue-white be open and get past Dance of the Manse. I think that's the responsible way to do it, but Dance is very good and i think worth building your deck in a way to try to maximize it i agree the other thing i missed about this is you can pay x equals six without having six targets like you don't have to get six targets in your graveyard before you can do the thing you can have four artifacts there and just pay x equals six and get four four fours
1: right and i think the other thing to miss that is you know you also don't have to do it for six that you could just have like an enchanted carriage. I mean, I guess that's five, but you know, you could have something that you'd want to get back. Plus like a couple eggs that are going to then draw you a few cards. And that's also a fine way to spend five or six mana.
0: Right? Absolutely. And I think, so if you have dance of the man, similarly to Emery eggs, go way up in value. Scalding cauldrons go way up in value. Artifacts, cheap artifacts like jousting dummy go way up in value that you can trade off. And ways to loot and or sacrifice artifacts. Like if you get a witch's oven and then you can sacrifice then your artifacts that are on the battlefield and then know that they're going to get to the graveyard so that you can bring them back with Dance of the Mance. All of those things are very real. All right, next and last is Doom Foretold. We both gave this a straight up Yeah, this is the worst of the build arounds here, certainly, but this is playable, right? So again,
1: things that I was thinking about when I evaluated this card,
0: too slow
1: came into mind, like edict effects aren't good in limited, and symmetrical effects aren't good in limited. But at worst, really, you can always just sacrifice this. So you're you know, paying four mana to make them sacrifice their worst creature, which is probably a two drop. You know, you've p- paid a four mana removal spell to kill a, a two mana creature before. That's not the worst. But the aspects of like, how do you break the symmetry here, I think were things that I didn't explore before just writing this off as an F. And there are ways to break the symmetry with two for ones and things like Foulmire Knight, if you can like draw a card and then you have it as a cheap thing that you can sacrifice. You know, even Lonesome Unicorn is something where it's like, well, you can't can't sack the token, but you can't sack the unicorn, and you're sort of getting a two-for-one. Golden Egg being the best of the bunch here, as it just is, like, it sort of does the thing that you wish your food tokens could do, but can't because they're tokens and not permanents. But Egg, you know, replaces itself, and then you can sacrifice it. So those ways to break the symmetry are present, and I didn't really even, like, try and dive into it, which is surprising because one of the favorite things that I like to do in cube is, like, uh braids or smokestacks, which are these sort of, like, symmetrical, quote-unquote, effects of sacrificing permanence. But the idea is, how do you break that symmetry? To your advantage,
0: rip braids in the vintage cube. I think that was one of the reasons I didn't play vintage cube a lot last time around. Really? Yeah.
1: Wow. Oh, yeah, rip braids. I mean, that's a bummer. What if Doomfortold comes around? Will you be in on it then? No, it's nowhere near the power level of braids. No, not at all. And a lot of the ways to do it in cube is like making
0: tokens with bitter blossom or whatever. Right. 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 Absolutely. So, what what grade are you giving doom Doomfortold now?
1: I think I'm giving it a build around. C plus. Like it's still not something that pulls me into white black, but it is something that if I'm in white black or have the ability to splash fairly easily and I have those ways to break symmetry that I am interested in playing. Like I now just think this is a card that I can put in my deck and be happy with.
0: I think I would give it a build around C minus C. I'm not quite that high on it, but I also have not played with it yet. I've only played against it and it has locked me out of the game hard once.
1: Yeah. I mean, there there are definitely times when you play it and it's just awesome. And there are also decks that are like just really like sort of pre-board it against it and those are times when you really need to side it out aggressively which is why i wouldn't put it into like the b range status because you that just can't be where that card exists if some matchups you're like i need to take this out that can't be where your like crux of the deck build around exists
0: right and i think the next level up moment is once you realize these rares are worth building around and are very powerful certainly the ones that are in like the you know eight out of ten nine out of ten range like fires of invention or emery or dance of the manse right dance of the manse is not so much Dance Mance so is so good i mean when you when you do it it is but it's a lot harder to do yeah i think is figuring out how during the draft portions the card evaluations changed and i think you got a little bit of a picture of that in the round table and certainly i think you need to take those cards more aggressively like i can remember a draft where i was doing this and you were on the line and we took golden egg over sir eleanora twice and both times you had to twist my arm to do it and both times it was a hundred percent the right thing to do with the way the deck ended up turning out and you know raw power level sir eleanor is probably like a b right Mm -hmm. but the cards get bumped up so much that go well with these cards because your whole deck then starts to tick so once you get the card i think especially with build arounds that are very powerful you need to go hard and you need to be willing to make unconventional draft picks. And I think that's part of the way you learn, right? There's there's no way to really say, okay, like to teach you Okay, once you have this, then you take golden egg over this. Like, there's just too many moving pieces, but you need to be willing to, as a drafter, push in these types of directions, and then you figure it out by trial and error. It's sort of like cube, right? You try to build around Emery, and you take golden egg over something, and then it doesn't work, and you think, man, I wish I'd had that other card. Or you think, gosh, I'm really glad I have these two golden eggs. I would have taken golden egg over about anything. And just doing the thing helps you get your own experiences to teach you where those breaking points are for how much to lower or raise the values of cards like Golden Egg or Scalding Cauldron. So I think
1: looking at a bunch of these, like, you know, niche build arounds or, you know, revisiting our card evaluations may feel like, hey, this doesn't apply to me. Like, I'm only drafting the format, you know, a dozen or so times. I don't really hit it hard on Magic Online or Arena. I'm more of an LGS player. I don't know. Like, maybe you think that this is sure, for you guys who are doing like 50, 75, 100 drafts, this makes sense for you. But how does this apply to me? And I think there's a, a number of things to consider. I think one, if you aren't doing this, if you're not risking or maybe thinking about these like high risk, high reward build around payoffs, I think you're sort of plateauing as a drafter in terms of unlocking the power level of decks available to you. And now I think Eldraine is sort of unique in the fact that there are so many avenues and they're all very good. And One of the reasons is the cool build arounds that exist at rare and uncommon. Next up, I think then you need to, if you don't have the opportunity to have the reps, really then think about what are the sort of optimal or think about it optimistically of if I were to draft this rare, what kinds of cards would I want to support it at Common. And then, how is that list different than my list of top commons in the set or top common in that rare's colors or this optimal color pair, et cetera? And I think once you think about that, then you can start to sort of structure things a little differently throughout the draft or anticipate how things are going to look for you a little differently throughout the draft. And that's where you get to those picks of like, I'm going to take Shambling Suit here over Lock Dragon, or I'm going to take Golden Egg over Scorching Dragonfire or Sir Eleanora, things like that. That's when you really get to build those decks that are greater than the sum of their parts. And those
0: are really where these cards are going to shine the most. Right. Well, and if you're only somebody that drafts the format 15 times, maybe you're not going to be the person that discovers that Emery Lurker of the Lock is busted. But once you listen to, you know, you're going to be consuming content, you're going to be listening to us, you're going to be listening to limited resources. And once we tell you, hey, we can confirm this is good, you know, you just need to think about the cards that go with it and how they change. And I think you should, in one of your 15 drafts, try to do that. Because realistically, like, I've gotten to play with Emory, what, like maybe three times in 50 drafts or something. Mm -hmm. It's not like the people that are drafting millions of times get tons of reps with these cards either because they are rares. I mean, so I think you're missing out on some equity if you're not willing to take a chance on these build around rares and try to figure it out for yourself. And then once you maybe hit or miss... In this set, it also gives you experience for how to weigh those types of cards in future sets. I mean, it's going to be different cards, but it's going to be the same type of sliding scale. And the more you practice building and drafting with build arounds, the better you're going to get at it.
1: Yeah. I think my biggest takeaway from looking at the artifacts that we missed on and sort of just that archetype as a whole is again, something that I think we've used as a takeaway in previous sets is trusting Watsy and designing the set for limited. And that like, just being like, maybe this looks bad, but I'm going to go
0: in, in a more
1: optimistic viewpoint.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. I think that's a great place to wrap us up. Go forth draft fires of invention draft emery lurker of the lock <laughs> thank you as always to salty pretzels for our intro and outro music make sure you give that a listen you can check us out on
1: twitch and twitter i'm at twitch.tv slash lord tupperware ben is at twitch.tv slash mr metronome mr is spelled out we're both under those same usernames on twitter and you can tweet at the podcast at lords of limited
0: if you've got any feedback or any questions about the show shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com
1: thank you all so much for listening thank you for your support of the show in whatever way you do for listening for patronizing for tweeting about us we hope you have a wonderful holiday this week if you are celebrating and we'll catch you next week for another episode of lords of limited
0: happy thanksgiving everybody see you later
1: disagreements on the lands the lands are busted just just to let everyone know the, this common cycle of
0: lands is very good i'm only really excited about the blue and the green one i think you should be most
1: excited about the black one and limited. topping a creature is going to be better than topping a spell most of the time i think
0: maybe they're similar maybe i'm excited about the black one
1: they're pretty similar they, they're they're just very high picks i think i think we're i think we're i, I already have one of them in my top three commons of a color